Hello, and welcome to The Exit, presented by Flippa, the number one platform to buy and sell online businesses. Flippa manages over a billion in deal value annually and combines expert buy and sell side advisory with its market-leading valuation tool, deal room, off-market offering, market insights, and an AI-based deal-by-deal matching engine. Now for The Exit. The Exit is a 30-minute podcast featuring awesome entrepreneurs who have been there and they have done it. The Exit talks to operators who have bought and sold businesses of all different sizes. You learn how they did it, why they did it, and get exposure to the world of Exits. It's a world occupied by a small few, but accessible to many. On this episode of The Exit, I sit down with Bo Harrelson. He's an awesome entrepreneur, and currently he is the CEO of Scale That, two times founder, and he's the managing partner at Fidelitas Development. A really, really cool conversation here. He goes through talking about how he scaled his company and just all the different cool ups and downs that happened. And this is for all the service business-based people out there that are interested, that have created an agency of some kind. This episode is for you. Bo walks us through everything from the complicated set of digital marketing tactics that they really developed, all the way to how they really defined this whole new category of creating content and pushing it with paid advertising. And this is a a whole new category that's exploded over the last five years, maybe 10 years or so. But he was really at the forefront of it. So it's a great conversation. And his exit is a fantastic example for anyone out there that is listening to this and is in a service-based agency model or any kind of business that is maybe on the cusp of making seven figures. And this is just a fantastic bit of information for everybody out there. Bo is a really great communicator and he does a good job of unpacking all the different parts of his marketing background. So without further ado, let's sit down here on the exit and talk to Bo Harrelson. All right, everyone. Today I am joined by Bo Harrelson the legendary coach and consultant. How's it going, Bo? Dude, so great to be connected. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, I, Man, I'm in rarefied air. You guys have had some great guests, so I, I do not feel uh, at par, but we'll see. I'll let the audience figure out if, uh, if I, I'm the right fit for this podcast, but I'm very honored to be on. Thank you guys so much for having me and reaching out. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm excited to, to unpack this. But before we get into your multiple successes... Let's talk about your background. What got you into business and entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's interesting. My profile said I could either be a park ranger or a marketer or a pastor uh, when I was getting gearing up <laughs> to graduate from Texas A and M, and uh, and I've kind of combined all three. <laughs> no, I uh, I'm not living in a van down in the river and a park ranger, but I do play outside <laughs> as much as I physically possibly can, and uh, and and I think. The combination of art and business is really where I've kind of collided in this and why kind of marketing became a vein for me and where I kind of cut my teeth. Uh, ultimately, uh, that that uh, culminated in a 14-year history in advertising and $250 million of overseeing campaign dollars. And one of the, you know, some of the more viral campaigns of the early 2000s up into some of the more profitable campaigns of the past decade, I've had the opportunity to at a minimum, advise on, consult with, architect, all those types of things. So um, 
as much as I love the outdoors and our park rangers and what they do, I'm glad uh, it's been a fun journey <laughs> over the last 14 years, uh, combining with those interests in, in the marketplace in that way and exiting a company or two along the way. Nice. Very nice. So let's talk about the the first success that you kind of had. And let's talk about the trajectory here of uh, where you started and what that first initial company was. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, so I was at Office Max Corporate in 2008-2009. And we, uh, we ultimately were gearing up to be bought by Office Depot. And so that's not my success, but that actually my first kind of big chapter change is not, and, and really what kicked me into the entrepreneurial world was uh, by nature of an exit, right? At a Fortune 500 level. And so there I was kind of Jim Halpert-esque. I know, I know a lot about paperweights <laughs> and things like that uh, in that period of time. And I, I remember watching 150 of my, um, my coworkers get walked out the door, uh, you know, not directly related to that, uh, that acquisition, but in the middle of that recession going, you know what, I think I need to control my own destiny a little bit differently and just make sure that, you know, it doesn't come down to a spreadsheet and an equation for the, for, you know, my doomsday moment, walking out with a stereotypical box of all your goods from your cubicle. Uh, but I got to walk through, I made it, made it through that cut, got to walk through at a, a decent level, not at the top level. Again, I was in my twenties at this time. So I was in the boardroom once a quarter, but not every, you know, every week. Uh, but I got to, to see some of that experience, work with McKinsey, work with some of those kind of high-level Fortune 500 folks throughout that journey and get to, get to know how to read a P&L, how to read a balance sheet, how to understand all of those types of things at a publicly traded level, and, uh, and then work on some initiatives in advance of that exit, ultimately, um, and purchase of Office Max by Office Depot. And got kind of my my, you know, kind of got the taste of it, if you will. Uh, but by no means, I'm not going to set up, I was not in the conference room for the whole deal to get done. Uh, again, I was in my twenties. I was a bit of a grunt. Um, and, and that was good, but it was, uh, as we're talking about the exit, I think that's, that kind of got my, my appetite a little bit wet for going, okay, what would this look like as an entrepreneur someday? And also how do I make sure that I don't, uh, I'm not beholden to a spreadsheet somewhere in a big corporate environment and can control my own destiny as much as I can going mm. forward. So shortly thereafter that, I'd always wanted to live in Colorado. I built a, a network out here over seven spring breaks in a row. I'd come out here, I would work the same Excel spreadsheet that I'd worked for seven years in a row and built a network up and down the front range of Colorado by just taking notes of, okay, this person likes their coffee this way and they work at this company. And I would follow up every, every year and go, Hey, John Doe, like, you know, I'm back out in your neighborhood. Can I swing by and get you one of your honey oat milk lattes or whatever it was. And, uh, and so I did that for seven years in a row, just knowing that I wanted to end up out here in Colorado and, Sure enough, in the middle of that uh, that transition, uh, it just made sense for my wife and I to move out this way and start family out this way. So I started a company with a good buddy of mine uh, named Mike Worley, and we ran a marketing agency for four years. And that was ultimately the journey that led to my first personal exit. Uh, I read John Warlow's Built to Sell uh, in the first six months of starting that agency uh, and, and really did my best in those first year or two to create an agency that was worth selling. Uh, but as these things go, the first year or two was real scrappy. Uh, if, if I'm being honest, long hours, uh, you know, not everything was perfectly built out into, you know, predictable revenue as Aaron Ross would put it. So those books were kind of foundational on that journey. 
And, uh, and so the first, you know, year or two were kind of the wild west, but we, we quickly doubled in size, which is easier year one and year two, but grew that thing to be a seven figure agency, which I didn't understand at the time, but like on paper, that's actually kind of a hard, harder feat and is a little bit more uncommon. Uh, we caught it at a good time. There was only 15,000 uh, agencies in the U S now there's like 30 plus thousand. Um, and it's a good business. You can start it with a laptop and a network and, uh, and push some pixels and get some good work done. So we enjoyed it. But, uh, but that was my first exit. So years kind of one and two were pretty rough. Uh, right around the end of year three, uh, we really started kind of catching our stride uh, and built it around this idea of how do we create uh, ultimately growth for folks, but also profit and make sure that if, if at the end of the day, performance-based marketing comes down to your AOV and your LTV and your customer acquisition cost, how do we triangulate all those numbers to make sure that people are generating money? And, uh, and I, one of my most highest dollar retainers at the time, uh, and you're sorry to bounce back and forth chronologically, but this is foundational for me as an agency guy or an advertiser is I remember we had a $12,000 retainer to like write some blogs and do a bunch of content marketing. And I remember going, you know what? I think we're going to turn these people out because Google is not indexing this content fast enough. Uh, so we said, Hey, why don't we take $8,000 of this money that we're profiting from and spend that on ads and spend $4,000 creating the content and make sure that that content and those, lead, those landing pages and all those types of things actually succeed because we were churning customers pretty quickly because content marketing was changing rapidly at the time. And, uh, and ultimately, at a semi-sacrificial $8,000 loss to our bottom line uh, flipped over to spending that on Zuckerberg and all those other guys. And we were able to create predictable growth for that company. And from then on, we had a you know two-to-one or three-to-one ratio of for every dollar we're spending creating creative for you or content or whatever we want to make sure we're spending roughly two to one or three to one of those dollars actually creating amplification around those if you're if you're not in the habit of spending money on media and that's ultimately that was kind of the that was the landslide moment for that agency and became kind of our penultimate if you will house rule uh which seems intuitive in retrospect but you know at the time felt pretty uncomfortable uh because content marketing really didn't, there's kind of these two worlds between per performance marketing and content marketing at the time. And those worlds hadn't really collided uh, at that time heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, that was the secret sauce there. Uh, and I apologize. I got lost in, in, uh, in a little bit of ancient history up to that next exit, right? You're trying to get into kind of that first exit. So, Right about that time, we won an award for being Digital Marketers uh, Agency of the Year. Uh, and just before that, we had two or three people come to us uh, organically just within our network and say, hey, we'd love to at least, you know, not even just partner with you, but purchase you guys. And there are people within our network that approached to us and, and reached out. I had just finished up a nearly month, month and a half stay in the hospital with my son. Uh, who was born two months early and had come out of that and operationalized the business as best I could. Uh, Cause at that point I'd had to be the kind of key man in the room and really put pen to paper with some of John Warlow's principles around building this thing to sell it. So I'd had three to six months of, of time out of the hospital with my son to see those 
see that playbook in action versus, you know, I, I think quite honestly, while I was in the hospital, I got a, you know, I give the business a B minus. It was not operationalized. It was not ready to sell. Uh, so that was a good swift kick in the the pants to, you know, get this thing operationalized and tidied up and ready. And, you know, by God's grace, right at that three to six month mark, once it was kind of operationalized, I got, we got a few organic offers that came in. And, uh, and then I had to learn through the school of hard knocks of going, Hey, I don't have a broker in my corner. I don't know, you know, what this looks like. I don't know how to navigate all these new lawyers and people that are all up in my business Mm -hmm. for the kind of underwriting process of all that. Uh, and, and, uh, I wish I had in retrospect, I think it would have been a good thing, but I, I began that courtship phase and began talking to two or three buyers all at once. Got it. Very cool. And when it came to the buyers and negotiations, what was that like, you know, with going back and forth, would you get an offer and then go to somebody else and say like, Hey, this is our, our minimum (laughs) offer. How'd you do it? Sure. Well, it's funny because, and even to this day, there's not a lot of things you can Google about this. You know, quite, quite, quite candidly, I solved a lot of my earlier problems and things that you can Google and that's great. And the internet's amazing and you can YouTube your way to some things, but you know, when it comes down to what's a service company worth with this amount of revenue, with this amount of profit in Colorado at this time in history, what's the multiple on that? How does that all work? There's some things that you just can't Google. And, and so, you know, you just start testing the waters. It's kind of sales a little bit of going, Hey, here's, here's what we're thinking. Uh, here's what we think is fair. And then a bit of back and forth on that. Uh, so, it's a courtship. It really is. It's a, it's a, you know, we had a few buyers that would fly us out. One fly, flew us out to Texas and we met with them and their team. Few were local. And, uh, ultimately, interestingly enough, some of those conversations divided us as founders. Uh, so, uh, my buddy and co-founder Mike wanted to move down to Texas at the time. I wanted to stay here in Colorado. So we had to really work through those tensions throughout that process. Uh, and ultimately that led to a place where, he sold his portion to the company down in Texas, not to get too convoluted within this. And, uh, and, and then I actually then took over as sole owner of the company. And then within six months after that, sold the company to a company in Colorado. And so these are forcing functions for you as founders to go through these dress rehearsals. And again, it was kind of like, you know, we've been doing this thing for four years. It felt like graduation day for both of us as founders. And so there's, Literally throughout that, that process, I, you know, navigated the buyout of a partner and then the buy and then the company actually getting getting bought out as well. And that was a great, great way to cut my teeth into this place of learning how to create exits. Mm-hmm. And uh and it, you know, and the reality that what what you work out in a partnership agreement day one, you need to be prepared for executing that and having good mechanisms in that. Uh, and fortunately, Mike and I had great mechanisms for all of those scenarios in our partnership agreement day one. But I think a lot of people start a deal on a, you know, a napkin and a over a beer a cocktail and off they go. Uh, and we don't always plan for these scenarios where life changes, priorities change, all those types of things. So there's one bit of advice I, I would, give anyone is like, Hey, make sure your partnership agreements tight, prepare that, you know, there is a situation where you're not going to be roommates in that same business anymore. You're going to eventually go your own different way and have good mechanisms for those in place, uh, as well. Yeah. Well said, well said. So 
you touched on it briefly there, but let's talk about the preparedness. And, and you know, you okay. mentioned that you operationalized. You had a B minus while you're in the hospital, but afterwards it, it got much much more streamlined. Let's talk about mm-hmm. uh, some tips that you could give people on how to be prepared for, you know, whether it's starting with exit in mind or maybe someone's listening to this podcast right now and it's going to change their mind to say, I'm going to, I'm going to exit. What could they do to get prepared to go through something like this? Yeah. Uh, so two things, uh, one qualitative and one quantitative. Uh, one, I would have quantitatively, I'd have everything clean numbers wise, get, you know, spend a little bit extra on a bookkeeper, spend a little bit extra on your financial services side of your business and make sure that your books are tight and clean. Uh, so that's quantitative. That's hopefully, you know, intuitive. Uh, if you do enlist the help of a broker, have, uh, have that broker show you the best case, like best practices for a data room and those types of things and have some that kind of Dropbox folder ready to go. Um, so that it's intuitive to understand the financials of your business. The qualitative side of things is there are things that make you, you as a founder that you do not appreciate or think are particularly interesting or unique or can be replicated, but have someone shadow you, uh, maybe it's an account manager or someone within your business and go, Hey, can you just watch me for two weeks? (laughs) This sounds really weird, but can you just like watch me for two weeks sit in sales conversations with me uh, and document a few of the, in my case, boisms that, uh, that I, you know, I don't think are special, but can you note them as special? It sounds egotistical if you say it like in this and context, but it's actually really beneficial for the business because there's inevitably as a founder, and I, I assume I'm talking to some founders here on the other end of this podcast. There's some things that you do that you take for granted that are nuanced to the business and really make the business what it is. And you need someone to document those. So have someone sit, document those things out. And so I did that process and I had someone say, Hey, you do this in every sales call. I don't know if you ever knew, if you knew you did this. And I was like, I don't, I don't just the, just the way the conversation goes. Uh, and we documented those things out and then we put them into SOPs and got them, you know, ultimately replicated out and off my shoulders and operationalized. And, and again, I'm coming at this from a service company background. Uh, but those things were really, really key. And I was very blind to how many weird bespoke things I did as a founder before I just had someone shadow me uh, and and document those things down. And so that's the qualitative and quantitative advice. Nice. Very cool. I like the shadowing. That's, yeah. uh, that's a smart one. That's definitely a smart one. This podcast is brought to you by Flippa.com, the leading global platform to buy and sell online businesses. Do you need evaluation for your business? Have you asked yourself, who would buy my business? Flippa has a leading valuation tool. It's free to use and based on thousands of historical sales. To get evaluation or to schedule a call with an advisor, head to Flippa.com slash free valuation. Now, back to the show. So let's talk about timing. Now, a lot of questions always come up around why is it the right time? There's a bunch of different factors that go into it, including the chapter of your life, everything. But what could you share around when the right time to exit a business is? So the short answer is do not wait until you're desperate or you think you've hit your peak. The the right time, in my opinion, is before the soccer ball kind of hits its apex, if you will. 
right? So if you think that the soccer, like that your business is going to apex within your local max of your local efforts within your local, the skills that you have, and you think that that moment is three to nine months away and you've got enough gas in the tank to like, you know, go another nine to 12 months in that business because either you're feeling tapped out, your life has changed, whatever that looks like. It's not predatory to then to go shop your business around. It's actually a good thing because there's founders that are built for taking, say your company is doing three to five million and you're really good at building a company up to five mil or whatever that looks like. There's founders out there that are out there that are really good at taking a company from five to 20 mil, right? And you just need to know your place in history of that business. And so don't wait until you find that out the hard way. I had a really, really good buddy that had a $70 million valuation on his business nine months before he had to essentially file for bankruptcy and insolvency on that business, right? And so his energy and his time and his focus was changing. And he felt that. And so he shopped it around a little bit, had some early offers on it, but he really wanted to exit for 100. (laughs) And there was this, you know, and I would say this with him in the room, but he was fixated on that number. He wanted that from a... Uh, you know, ego, confidence, whatever. He thought the business was worth a hundred. I'm not going to sit here and throw, I don't, I've never built a personally, I've never built a business that was worth a hundred uh, or 70, but he was fixated on that number. I think we can all agree that he would have been just fine at 70. Like that's some generational wealth and then some uh, to sell, but his energy and his time started changing. And unfortunately, so goes your energy. So goes the business. And so really pay attention to your energy reserves as you start to get ready to sell and start earlier than you think, because the process is going to take, depending on the size of the business, you know, minimum of six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you just need to have that emotional quota, if you will, and that that energy in the tank. Uh, so the short answer is, uh, if you think you're six months out from that that moment, start, start thinking about it today. And don't wait until you're, you know, because I got news for you, and if it's a one or two million dollar exit, there's not a big, huge difference in those numbers. Once, if with the right tax strategy and things like that in mind, uh, so if you if you get ahead of all those conversations, that's that's the ideal thing, and it's going to take longer than you think to sell it. Just is, yeah, yeah. I like that planning planning your energy, uh, and I I remember there was a, a recent quote that I heard that was like, you don't, you're not limited by the amount of hours in a day, you're limited by your energy. And I thought that that was such Mm -hmm. a a cool reframe as to like how you view energy and how you should approach, you know, your day and solving problems and whatnot. And I think it's, it's so accurate with especially running a business through something like an exit. So let's shift gears a little bit to what happened next. I know there's multiple successes that you had, but after this, really interesting one where you, you had to buy out a partner and then go through the exit. Uh, what happened after that? Yeah. So ultimately the exit happened within about, eight, let's call it nine months a year after like kind of that whole year was kind of, and one thing no one can prepare you for, but to note as an entrepreneur is, you know, you're always working in the business as much as you can distance yourself from it. It's just, it's just there. You're working on the business and then you now have a third job, which is working to sell the business. Talk about energy management. Having a, a person in your corner to work, you know, ideally you're delegating the, the task of the, the in the business work. You're dedicating time to working on the business. But I would recommend having someone in your corner for the working on selling the business because that was, you know, I had my day job, uh, my night job, and then my early morning job <laughs> like throughout that whole season. And, uh, and, 
And to answer your question, we sold, or I sold, and I did a, a you know multi-year earnout. And the hypothesis was, hey, if we take Bo's processes from his company, bolt that into this creative agency in Boulder called Human, then we can take that performance marketing background with that creative and slam those things together and things will work. Well, that hypothesis proved to be true about 60% of the time. Then the other 40% is what are we learning on the job to make sure that's, uh, that's, that's part of it. And for service exits, I would, I would always anticipate some level of earnout, some sort of second bite of the apple, some sort of, you know, period of time that you're hanging out in that company, unless you're just like, you know, totally airtight in our operations and your contracts. Uh, so for those listening, just plan some extra gas in the tank for that earnout period and know that, you know, you need to architect that really, really well. For me personally, as a professional, what was really, really fun was that I found that I kind of hit a fast forward button because my Rolodex only kind of got me to a Fortune 1000 level at that point in time. But this company that bought me had Fortune 500, Fortune 50 contacts and, and some, some case studies along those lines. And so then I was able to leverage those case studies and those logos, if you will, and my processes to find myself in boardrooms to of higher kind of like blue chip, you know, like bigger companies uh, and leverage kind of my methodologies, my playbooks into different rooms. And what would have taken me five to six years to earn my way into a fortune 50 companies boardroom. I could, I got there within five to six months, if that makes sense. Because now if I'm cold calling Southwest airlines and I have Nike on my roster, I'm going to get, I'm going to have an easier time working my way into that conversation than I would have if I had, uh, you know, someone that I, no offense to like a local regional client, but you know, not someone I picked up in the chamber of commerce. Uh, cause that credibility of having Nike on your roster just expedites that sales conversation and expedites that learning curve. Uh, it's not, you know, uh, it's not to say the processes aren't relevant, but you, you need processes and credibility to sell into large, you know, companies like that. Mm. Uh, and so then I was able to take, merge my Rolodex together, go actively sell into uh, Twitter. I use that to sell into Google and use some of those logos on that website to then go into sell into bigger brands and then show them the scrappier methodologies I'd learned kind of more in that challenger environment. Uh, and that ultimately paid dividends for those guys because the small guys want to play like the big guys. The big guys want to play like the small guys in terms of strategy, right? Like a big company wants to be nimble with their strategies and a small or big, a small company wants to be macro in their strategies. And so you can kind of cross pollinate between those two ideas. And that expedited that process for me as a service provider. Hmm. Yeah. I really like that, that the, the big guys want to act like the small guys and the small guys want to act like the big guys. I think that's a really cool, cool way of looking at it. Cause that is truly the superpower of a startup being able to be agile move quickly. And like you said, the, the sort of, uh, hustle, hustle, bustle, uh, and scrappy aspect of a startup is really what these bigger companies want. So that leads us to the finale question, knowing what you know now, what would you tell Bo 10 years ago? Hmm. So my current passion is in walking founders through this process. And, and I kind of look at it in three different chapters. So my, my career has had three chapters. Uh, so the first is 
becoming, and this sounds weird, this, this analogy, but we'll, we'll go for it. So your first like kind of journey as an entrepreneur is becoming a king. So you're building resilience. You're learning how to lead. Uh, you're taking some shots in the back, uh, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of on a war path. And eventually if you do that decently, well, you're rewarded a castle or you build a castle because your, your environment that you built becomes congruent right now. The marketplace understands what you're up to. They understand, Oh, well that's Bo. He's built this castle. They're really good at carpentry and blacksmithing and da, da, da. And, you know, we go to them for all of our needs on those fronts. Uh, most entrepreneurs stop there. Uh, and so they don't know how to so they keep building bigger and bigger castles. Well, what I've learned over my career is that you can actually build an empire by cross-pollinating your skills. Oh, they're really good at farming and they're really good at this and that and the other. Okay, cool. How do we build an empire and leverage these things? And that's what that's what mergers and acquisitions is all about, is cross-pollinating those different skills and building an empire through that. And most people's egos, quite candidly, hold them back at that castle stage and they just try to keep building a bigger and bigger castle. Well, Scotland did not stay Scotland by just building you know, one guy in one tribe building out a really big castle. Robert the Bruce and William Wallace like, started comparing notes with all the other tribes, and they're like, okay, cool, we've got to hold our own against the guys across the pond. Let's unify that. Let's build out this empire and hold the line. I'll spare you the ancient history of that. But point being, you know, once you learn the idea of leverage, leveraging your skill sets, leveraging your company's skill sets, to either sell to someone else or buy another company, you have this opportunity to create an empire and go figure like empires are stronger than single castles. And so my job as coach consultant found, you know, basically someone that's in founders corners is walking them through that whole process of becoming a king, building a castle and exiting to an empire and the emotions with that. And so I take on a half dozen or so founders each year and walk them through that process because it's emotional. Uh, it, it requires financial skills, all of those types of things, and help them get ready for an exit or get ready uh, to buy because uh, both are, you know, appropriate ways to, to step out of that castle building mentality and into that empire building mm. mentality. Got it. Love the love the picture yeah. that you painted there. That was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> so, uh, to what I could tell my ten, you know, someone ten years ago is like find a freaking guide, find someone that can expedite that process for you. And don't, you don't have to learn every lot like lesson the hard way. Mm -hmm. Like Flippa, I think offers some advisory services. I, I don't know kind of the back end of like what that looks like. Uh, you know, find a coach, find a consultant, reach out to someone, you know, like me that can kind of walk you through a little bit of that because I learned so many lessons the hard way uh, throughout, you know, my 15 year journey of buying and selling and exiting and this, that, and the other. And quite honestly, lost a lot of money uh, I made some money along the way and that's grateful. I'm grateful for that. But like there were some unnecessarily hard lessons that I had to learn without someone in my corner. So I would say, um, raise your hand and ask for help faster, uh, because there's a high probability that you're not the only one that's faced that problem before. Got it. Cool. Well, where can people go and learn more about what you're working on now? Yeah. Uh, pretty simple. Just look me up on Instagram at Bo Harrelson. Uh, Bo is spelled with a lot of vowels. Uh, so it's B-E-A-U. <laughs> and then Harrelson is H-A-R-A-L-S-O-N. So at Bo Harrelson on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active and can just drop me a line. I'll, I'll, I'll help you understand and, and you know, um, 
what how I can best serve you. But in general, I'm taking on about a half dozen to a dozen founders a year and walking them through the process of ex- exiting, getting ready to prepare or or buying. Um, and thanks to Flippa's database, we've got a, a lot of great you know businesses to scope out and understand uh, as a buyer what they can look like, and then as a seller what you could sell for. Awesome, awesome. Well, wherever you guys are listening on iTunes or Spotify, the link to everything Bo mentioned will be in the show notes. But thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story, Bo. Steve, appreciate it, brother. Thanks for the time.